Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Josh Marshall podcast with Josh Marshall and Kate Riga. So, to, you know, today we have, we're going to discuss the big indictment day, which I guess is also Trump's birthday. Did you see that? Did anybody see that? Did anybody see this? Right. And the funny thing is, I mean, it's, it's kind of sad, you know, we kind of, every, everybody's entitled to their, to their, to, to some dignity. It's sort of a, a bit, a bit rough to be, um, indicted and, and, and make history on, um, on, on your birthday. But the funny thing was that there were, I saw a news report, I guess when, when Trump stopped into that little Havana or at least Cuban, uh, bakery, down in in Miami that some people like sprung, you know, they, they sung happy birthday to him. And he was like miff because he doesn't like being, he doesn't like anybody being reminded it's his birthday. He just turned 77. Um, and it kind of made me think like this, is, if that's going to, if that's going to get to you, you're living in a pretty brittle house right? If, if, if someone mentioning, mentioning that it's your birthday. So anyway, so, so, but we're going to talk about that thing. And I, I don't know who remembers this, but late in his life, um, as the abuse allegations were sort of piling up with Michael Jackson, he was arraigned on some charges tied to one of these allegations. And, you know, he got called in, he got arraigned, all this kind of stuff. So he gets, he gets called in, he gets booked. And then after the booking, he comes out, Jackson, and like he gets on top of a some sort of, uh, you know, media bus or something like that, some big truck. And he does a kind of a little dance routine and, 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 and uh, you know, performs for the, for the crowd at his booking. Uh, and, um, you know, his fans, the hangers on, the media, the crazies, whatever. And, you know, and he made it into kind of like a pep rally. And when I, when I saw all of this yesterday, it kind of reminded me of that. And as the day went on and, and the kind of people's comments came in and everything, it all seemed like it was a bit kind of like protesting too much. I mean, protesting too much, but you know, in the, in, in the Shakespeare sense. Um, and you know, a couple Republicans came out yesterday and they're kind of like, yeah, it's, it's deep state and blah, but he really shouldn't have done that. And, and you endangered this and endangered that and, and, and all, all this kind of stuff. 
And Trump himself, when he was, you know, kind of coming out of his compound to get into his uh, motorcade to go to get booked and everything, he didn't seem happy. And like, okay, you know, why would you be happy, right? It's you're 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 turning seventy seven today, and you're going in to become the first ex president in American history to get charged under federal indictments for like numerous felonies. And that's your that's your that's your only your second record this year because you became the first ex president to be non federally indicted. Like what? In March, I can't remember when that was exactly. And he just seemed a little, he seemed a little low energy to me. Like he, like he wasn't having a great time. And so much of the Trump thing is saying, oh, you think I'm owned? I'm having an awesome time. I'm having the best birthday ever being indicted. And in fact, me being indicted is only going to make me stronger. And now I'm going to go to Bedminster and hold a rally. And I'm like, okay, awesome. But, um, you know, I just had the, and, and to be clear, and I said this in a post today, I'm still sure he's going to get the nomination. I'm not saying the sort of like the fever's breaking and all that kind of stuff. He's going to get the nomination. This is going to help him get the nomination. But when I just saw the whole day yesterday, I was sort of like, you know what? His grip here is not as strong as I kind of figured it might be. It looks like he's he, he's he's having a strain to hold on to these people. And even on the big day, on indictment day, when you're going to expect the most solidarity, the most loyalty, the most, the most, the most, it seemed like it was kind of fraying a bit. And I think it's going to keep fraying. Uh, and you, you know, you can you can sort of see these these different Republican elected officials. It's like they're kind of probing for some. Where's a footing here where I won't turn against Trump, but I can kind of say like, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. That wasn't great. Like, I still hope the deep state doesn't indict you, but that wasn't, that wasn't awesome. So I just, I just feel it was not a great day for Trump, even by Trump standards. And uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about uh, Republicans think they have really House Republicans, you know, after after a week or so of we underestimated Kevin type stuff, uh, now there's not quite a rebellion, but but you know the 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 sort of the far right people in the house, or you know they had a uh, mass shooters rights bill they wanted to pass. They have this thing they call it like well it's just a pistol grip. Like, you know, it's ATF overreach. But what it really is, is a kind of like a thing that sort of makes a pistol into like a, into like something like an AR-15. And the ATF says, well, okay, we regulate these kind of guns. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's sort of like a rising gun. It's like all the top mass shooting influences are using it in their mass shootings over the last year or so. So they wanted to get that in and they, 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 they slowed things down. So, so now... They're uh, coming up with a way, like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna sort of break out of the debt ceiling agreement. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do more cuts and all this kind of stuff. And it does seem like there's this there is a either a a misdrafting of the debt ceiling agreement or maybe just a kind of a complexity 
that was there that uh, most reports didn't quite grasp that makes it like they could force a shutdown, um, which means we may not be done with the drama this year. But as Kate and I are going to discuss, it doesn't really change the picture because the cudgel that is over the Republicans, the enforcement mechanism uh, that is in the agreement that's going to hold the Republicans in line is still there. And it's not affected by a shutdown. So we're going to get into that, but some more drama there. We're going to talk about other things. But before we do that, remember, uh, we got a new sponsor for the Josh Marshall podcast. And the new sponsor is TPM, is us. We are sponsoring the podcast because we are having our big annual TPM Journalism Fund fundraiser this month, June uh, 2023. Uh, We're a week into it. Um, We're off to a solid start. We may get to the halfway point to our goal uh, this week, which I'm sorry, today, which will be awesome. Today is uh, Wednesday, June 14th. Uh, hopefully we'll get there. That is uh, $250,000 out of our goal of raising $500,000. Uh, if you go to the website, you can, you know, there, there are, uh, stuff all over the website and promos and everything right there, you know, there that you can see, you click, uh, you contribute. If you're a fan of the website, you're already, you've, you've already heard about this. Uh, you've seen the promos on the site and all that kind of stuff. But some of you, maybe you're just really into Josh and Kate, you know, the Josh Marshall podcast. And, and so this is, this is all, you know, of TPM and, uh, this is a free podcast. We're totally psyched that you're a listener, but if you do enjoy it, uh, consider, uh, uh, contributing to our drive this year because TPM is the entity that puts out this podcast that makes it all possible. And uh, as you know, these are incredibly difficult times in the journalism industry and and the TPM Journalism Fund Drive is one of the things that allows us not to be one of those publications that you keep hearing about that is like going out of business or uh, you know replacing its reporters with AI or something like that. Uh, so give that a thought. TPM Journalism Fund Drive, annual drive. We are one week into our one-month drive. It's going well. We've got a long way to go. So if you are game, stop by TalkingPointsMemo.com. You should check out the site anyway because it's awesome. We've got all sorts of great stuff there. But if you go there, you see the promos for the drive and you can, you know, contribute whatever, whatever amount makes sense to you. So Kate, I assume fully acclimated back to uh, working life in the United States. So, what are we? I guess we're talking about Trump's indictment. What's the What's the story? It's funny because you know, Trump is always breaking norms, right? That's what he does, and it's the kind of thing where you always get kind of inured to things like impeachment because we did it twice, and now it's like, well, this isn't even our first indictment rodeo, you know. But I think in some ways, this one maybe hit a bit harder. I think both because the charges are on something that's a bit more immediate. You know, the first round was the the Stormy Daniels hush money payments, which in Trump time feels like it happened five decades ago. Um, and this one, the indictment, it was only like, you know, 47 pages or so and was full of just, you'd almost call it pettiness. It like there, there are pages of Trump quotes about how if he becomes president, you know, he's going to really crack down on people mishandling classified information. And there's just bullet point after bullet point of like different uh, you know ways that he said this. And this was all, you know, kind of directly connected to the Hillary emails thing and all and, and all that. So you've got that piece and then it's kind of peppered with photographs 
infographs, which makes everything, you know, get more traction online and just kind of get more people to interact with it. And the one that's, you know, kind of the picture heard around the world from this is the Mar-a-Lago bathroom heaped with boxes of classified documents and then kind of topped off with a gaudy chandelier at the top, which has actually prompted my favorite of all the Republican reactions, which is a tie between McCarthy saying, well, you know, bathrooms lock, which I've been driving, just been driving me crazy for days because they famously don't lock from the outside. Like that's not what a bathroom does. So an interior lock, Kevin, doesn't change the situation. <laughs> it didn't even occur to me, to be honest with you. I, I've been thinking about it for days. And then B, you have... Unless you're a serial killer, they don't lock from the outside. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah And then yeah. B, you have Byron Donalds being like, oh, Mar-a-Lago has 57 bathrooms. So what are the chances a guest will wander into that one, which is like unimpeachable defense. Perfect. Um, but the other piece that's been interesting is we keep waiting on tenderhooks to see if the 2024 hopefuls will ever use any of this kind of handed to them ammunition against the guy who's their main competition and the one that they're trying to kind of make their own case against. And the immediate reaction was all, except for like, you know, Asa Hutchinson was all like, this is weaponization of the DOJ. Trump is my king, et cetera, et cetera. And now you're starting to get a little bit of repositioning. Uh, you know, you're having like Nikki Haley take like a slightly harder line. You're having Pence, I think just today coming out and saying this was not terrific kind of thing. So, you know, nothing, nothing shouting from the rooftops, but there has been like a subtle repositioning away from I will link my arms with this man and put my life in front of him when Merrick Garland tries to come and kill him kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I what is it? I was looking at looking at uh, Pence's thing here that that Newsweek uh, is was it news wait, it's Newsweek that published it, but it's 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 actually a a an interview that Pence did with the Wall Street Journal. So I don't know, you know, Newsweek is like aggregating this or whatever. Newsweek ain't, ain't, ain't what it used to be. Um, I, you know, Pence said he can't defend it. Very serious allegations. Then he says this thing about like, you know, he'll, he still deserves his day in court. Um, blah, blah, blah. So here, here's, here's the exact quote. Having read the indictment, these are very serious allegations and I can't defend what is alleged, but the president is entitled to his day in court. He's entitled to bring a defense and I want to reserve judgment until he has the opportunity to respond. Blah, 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 blah. So, you know, that, that, as you say, it's, it's, it's not, he's not bringing down the hammer on Trump, but it is kind of like, I, I can't defend this, you know, kind of, which I, I think is just, it's not what Trump wants. He wants you kind of like, not only are you golden, but this assault on your goldenness is like the biggest assault and the most important assault ever. And I'm going to be there with you, um, if not in the foxhole, in the bathroom with the classified <laughs> documents, you know. Uh, yeah, it, it's it, I think, you know, one thing you said about the indictment there's an when you said petty, I thought you were going to mention something else uh, because it's one thing if I mean it's it's still nonsense. It's one thing if Trump wants to say these are my documents. I decided that um, I want them and they're mine and whatever like that. Like okay, I mean <laughs> that's not true. Like that's not what the law says. But at least that is coherent, right? 
you know, I'm making my stand. These are mine. But you look in the doc, you look in the document and, you know, you look in the indictment and it's not quite that. It's like, okay, I'll give them back. And you send a few of them and you keep the rest. And you're like, oh, I'm telling my guy to like, hey, this, this, my lawyer is coming. And I told my lawyer, maybe, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, kind of hide them, but maybe you lawyer guy can hide them. And when the lawyer guy won't hide them, I'm going to tell my butler guy to move them from, from one storage room to the storage room in my, you know, in my bathroom or, you know, it's just, you're kind of like, dude, that's weak. Like, what are you doing? Like, this isn't like, this is like the Benny Hill show or something, right? Kind of like all this like cat and mouse. And, and it just, it just seems lame. And I think that's kind of the part of it. And the kind of like, A, why didn't you just give them back? Because they're, they're obviously not yours. But you just seem like an idiot doing this like the lawyer's coming to look up at them in the storeroom. So take them from the storeroom and, and, and put them in the, you know, the, the meat freezer. And it's just, dude, you're like a former president. Like, have some self-respect. And I, I, sus- I, I suspect that's kind of part of it. Like, how do you, how do you, how do you defend it? Because at some level, Trump wasn't even willing to defend it himself. Because if you think they're yours, keep them. Don't hide them. It's it just, I don't know. It, it, it's, he seems more than anything in these documents, he seems silly. Yeah, totally. Like you're a fucking grown man. Like, what are you doing here? I thought Romney's statement on this was actually really good um, because it was just all about like from all appearances, it seems investigators gave Trump more leeway than they would a normal person. So he really brought these charges upon himself. And that is kind of the central thing here, which I think to some degree, I mean, not for the set that's always going to say this, but for other people really does weaken the whole like they're coming after me. They won't leave me alone. It's like they gave you so long to just return it. Like they were begging him to just hand over the documents and we'll forget this ever happened. And he wouldn't. And then, you know, we have anecdotes interspersed in the indictment about him pulling out documents to show people from a super PAC and a writer and a publisher just kind of like flapping them around to be like, look what a big important man I am that I have all these classified documents sitting around, which the indictment wastes no time in translating into, you know, and those things included information on the U.S. nuclear program and uh terrorist actions that are running counter to U.S. interests. And, you know, Jack Smith's like, five seconds press conference was basically just you've got to enforce national security laws because there are, you know, men and women in the armed forces and in intelligence who are directly you know, put in danger when you play fast and loose with this kind of stuff. So it just it has less valences that I think are easier for the kind of right wing machine to turn into like, oh, my God, this is just them hating Trump once again, which with the stormy stuff, I think was a little more like oh, why you don't like that he slept with a with a porn star, like the prudish elite, you know, professorial left coming after the guy who just does what we all do, right? But this one is just so much more kind of straightforward. And as you say, just puts Trump in this really kind of like stupid and petulant and buffoonish light throughout. Yeah, and, and you know, with with Romney's comment, I mean, it's not, the, it's not just that they gave him more leeway than an or, that an ordinary person would have. I mean, an ordinary person, 
you have classified documents at home, you're done. You're going to, you are going to get indicted and you're going to do jail time. There was actually a case that just, that was just litigated. Um, and in those cases, it was, I don't know, some military analyst or intelligence analyst. And it was very clear the government conceded that this guy was just trying to get ahead in his work. Right. He's, he's doing his work. He's a go getter. He's trying to get more done, work more time on the clock. So he took some stuff home so he could work on it at home. So like he wasn't trying to do any. He, he had no malicious um, uh, intent. He wasn't trying to hurt the government. If anything, he was trying to do more. You know, he was trying to work harder. Right. But it, it doesn't matter. It, it's the, the government cracks down like anything on this. And and it's even that they gave him plenty of shots, even for a big time person, mm-hmm. right? Even for even for a you know former cabinet or you know former current cabinet secretary, uh, you know former president. There's even God was it John Deutsch? I can't I can't remember. There there was there was a case. God, I think it was back um, during the Clinton. I, I don't remember exactly. There was a either a Democratic. Uh, director of the CIA or defense secretary, something like that, who got in some trouble. I think it was, you know, pled out, or I can't remember what the resolution was, but basically where they took the laptop, you know, their sort of national security laptop that has various stuff on it that you can have classified information on it and worked on it at home. And, you know, these are some cases where there is some gray area where, um, if you are like a cabinet secretary or someone who's everything you do has to do with classified stuff. And like one time you take one computer and you, you take it home or, so, you know, kind of like that's not great. There should be some consequences. But like, should you go to should you go to jail over it? You know, whatever. But as you said, they said to him repeatedly. Who, who cares? Just bring him back. And all is forgiven, even though why the fuck did you have them in the first place? Like, what are you thinking? Right. Um, and he just wouldn't. And he lied about it and he hid the stuff. And it is kind of one of these things of um, you, you look at the behavior and like fundamentally, he thinks they're his. He doesn't understand that the U.S. government is a thing that is not just something he owns. I think to him, he did a hostile takeover. Another business titan came along and did a hostile takeover, and he wants it back. And it was his, and they're his, and all that kind of stuff. I think another part of it is that Trump is about, we know this, Trump is about dominance. He's about dominance. And recognizing limits is the opposite of dominance. If you're dominant, there are no limits. That's what being dominant is. Not just being powerful, dominant. So, he can't recognize limits. He can't recognize norms because that's not being dominant. But you see this stuff with the hiding and the this and the that. And, and they're kind of, at some point, they're kind of saying like, dude, you really need to give these back. Like this is a legal issue. And he doesn't, it's almost like you're dealing with like a hoarder or something. You're like, dude, what's wrong with you? Like give them back. Like for your sake, give them back. And I think you look at this indictment and they're saying that, you know, weaponizing laws, you know, no one's treated this way. I think you actually look at it. It's more like, dude, what is your problem? 
Like you need help. Well, I think that's the fundamental thing, which is like every time we have something like this with Trump, it's this, it's a always a combination of like clownishness and maliciousness. And here it's like fundamentally why did you want all these boxes? Like, even if you go in with the whole, he wants to kind of like flaunt that he has access to the nuclear football or whatnot. Like, I guarantee he never even opened most of them. He just had this guy, Nauta, who's now going down with the ship, like schlepping them from room to room to keep them out of sight of the attorneys. But it's not even, you know, it's it's like a dragon sitting atop a hoard of treasure that it hasn't itemized and doesn't even really know what's there. But like the second something comes up of, can I have this chalice? He's like, absolutely not. That's mine. And it's like, why do you want it? There's no real reason. He just decided that they were his and that's the end of it. Even if he didn't want to use these documents, you know, I sometimes think we like add this layer of malicious scheming to Trump that he's just like not really even smart enough to do. So it's this whole thing of like, well, maybe he wants to peddle US secrets to foreign interests, blah, blah, blah. It's like, I don't think that he has any kind of ideological opposition to that. But I also don't think he has the attention span to pull something like that off. So in the meantime, it's just like, find a new closet to put all my boxes, which I've never opened in, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's... as you allude to, there's all these, there's lots of people saying, well, he was going to, he, he did sell them. He was going to sell them. I don't think so. Again, not because I would put it past him, but because selling stuff can get you in trouble. Um, and, and beyond that, um, you don't need to sell anything. You know, you, I, and, and I think basically this is about just feeling like you have juice. Right. Like you said, he's the dragon, you know, kind of uh, nestled down in the horde and, you know, kind of shows them to people and stuff. And I think that makes you feel like, well, hey, man, I still got it. You know, I got the out secrets. Oh, I can't can't tell you everything. I got, but it's a lot. It's a lot. And I've got a lot of juice. And I think that 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 means that he could do it. Could. You know, if he wanted to, because he has it, so he could sell them. Or maybe if you're nice to him, he could just sort of give you a sense of what's there. Um, So I think it is more probable that rather than some sort of like official transaction, it would be more like, you know, if the Saudis, if they're coming up with with what sport they, what American sport they want to buy now, it would be he would say like, you know, yeah, I got a lot of stuff. So let's talk about our business deal and stuff and maybe cut me in because, you know, I've got the stuff. And it's funny, there was um, in the country's uh, collective obsession with Trump and Russia a few years back, I mean, merited obsession, there were many, many books and many articles and many discussions of the people who followed the career of Vladimir Putin over the years. And so a lot of Americans, myself included, kind of went very deep into that that post-Soviet Russian world, which is really Putin's world since he's basically been there. There was only like an interregnum of seven or eight years between the end of the Soviet Union and when Putin came on the scene and only a couple more years until he became president. And one of the things about that world is, and this is where, you know, compromise and all that kind of stuff comes into, you know, all these words that Americans uh, got very into. And one one of the things there is that 
everybody has something on everybody else. Everybody, it, it's, it's an entire currency of secrets. And one of the things is, the thing about having secrets is to keep them secret, right? You never really use them. So every, the whole society, all the oligarchs, all the people in government, it's all this kind of mutually assured destruction. I have stuff on you, you have stuff on me. You know, that's kind of the, 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 the currency and everything. And it's a bit like that. That's a lot of currency. I've got all those documents. And um, so if you come at me, remember, I've got the documents. I've got a lot of stuff. You came at me, I could hurt everybody or I could help you. I could hurt you, I could help you. And it's, it's sort of, it's sort of um, all of a piece. And I think a lot of people end up being kind of too literal. Well, oh, he got them to sell them and, and stuff like that. In a sense, you don't want to sell them because then you don't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why sell them? You want to at, at most lease them, right? right? You can come by and look one time, all, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's just, but the irony is that they started telling him basically, dude, you got, you've got to give them back because this is serious. So just give them back. And that's really the point when they were willing to, he'd already committed the crimes. They're willing to say, give him a mulligan on that if he just gave them back and he just wouldn't. And here we are. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about um, the congressional McCarthy debt ceiling stuff that's going on. So basically, Biden signed that debt ceiling deal like 10 days ago, (laughs) which was, you know, the big great job, Kevin, you made a deal that was basically passed all on the backs of Democrats, but great job, Kevin, nonetheless. And at the time, I think it was kind of heralded as both what a good deal that averts both default and a shutdown. And I think that was a little bit misguided. And now people are kind of recognizing that mistake, which is why there's been an absolute flurry of these a shutdown is coming pieces. Because at the beginning of this week, McCarthy basically said those spending caps that Biden and I agreed to in that deal for this appropriations process, that's a ceiling, not a floor. So I'm going to give the green light to my appropriators to start writing up these budgets at a level that's far below the level that we agreed to, which amounts to a gigantic cut, right? So that kind of sparked off this whole now we're headed for a shutdown thing. Um, And the part of the debt ceiling bill that comes into play here is that if all 12 appropriations bill are passed by January 1st, good job, Congress, you did your job for once, everything's fine. If they pass a continuing resolution, which is what often happens because it just keeps spending at the same levels, it's like usually kind of what happens in the days before a shutdown when nothing's coming together and it's just something to keep the government open. That if they pass the CR, these automatic cuts that were built into the debt ceiling bill basically to keep Republicans from blowing up the whole process would go into effect. And that would drop spending across the board to 2023 levels minus 1%, which comes out a little bit differently when you talk about thing, you know, overarching categories, right? Because like there are for, you know, when we talk about the military budget, there's kind of like a lot of different pieces of that that go in. So the real effect on the military would be pretty significant, you know, like a a three, 4% cut kind of thing. The idea being this will give Republicans 
a stick that'll keep them at the table and stop them from just being like, well, you know, we want you to unravel every piece of legislation you've done or we're not going to help because this cut will hurt people in the military, which is something that Republicans profess to care deeply about. So now that we're already at this place where House Republicans are being like, we're going to go with spending levels that they know Democrats would never, ever accept and that Senate Republicans might not accept because Senate Republicans are the ones that actually really care about the military cuts here, um, that that will never fly in the Senate. They won't be able to agree on anything. They won't be able to agree on a continuing resolution, which would have the cut kick in anyway, but then also have a government shutdown. Yeah. And and I'm sure some of our listeners, either because of what they're hearing you say right now or what they've heard on the news over the last, you know, uh, uh, Monday, Tuesday of this week are like, oh, no, you know, we were told this was all resolved and, and there was no second bite of the apple and, and all this kind of stuff. And there's a there's a there's a basically I think that is still right. Um, it seems like there was a technicality in the way this agreement was drafted that either people just misdrafted it and didn't know how this one thing had been written up, or maybe there was a complexity that some reporters didn't get. But basically, it creates this loophole where, as you said, you could have all of the all of the cuts and a government shutdown. So let's, let's back up a little bit here. Everybody was saying, okay, debt ceiling resolved, budget potential shutdown, all also resolved, big global deal, no more nonsense for the rest of 2023. Okay. It sounds like now there could be a shutdown, but I'm going to argue that I don't think this actually changes anything. And, and here's why. Um, when we talk about a shutdown, there's two elements of a shutdown. One is that like all the federal employees get furloughed and like you can't go to a national park and like a bunch of things like that, which is a huge problem if you work for the federal government. The other problem is that it creates another sort of mini hostage-taking situation where it's another time for Republicans to demand more cuts. Okay. So, but the cuts, that is all locked in by this agreement. What's not locked in is to say, okay, now that you've, you've had the punitive cuts that were the penalty for not following the shutdown, I'm sorry, this gets complicated. Now that you're getting the penalty for not adhering to the debt ceiling agreement, you have these cuts to the military that Senate Republicans are not going to tolerate because they're pretty significant. They're nominal cuts of 3%. So they're already upset that they're sort of inflation adjusted cuts. Republican hawks are not going to accept that. But the government may also shut down. But so my point is, you're going to have the shutdown, but there's no cudgel because there's really no, there, there's, there's nothing there that is going to provide another way to get more concessions from Democrats. Because what you're going to potentially have happen, I, I, I can tell as I'm discussing this, that everybody's listening saying, I have no idea what Josh is talking about. because <laughs> it's, very, it's very hard to get your head around. Um, what it comes down to is this. The reason this agreement was good in terms of making Republicans adhere to it is that if they did not adhere to it in the budget negotiations, they would be immediately hit with huge defense cuts and really huge defense cuts in a time of inflation having actual dollar sign cuts of about 3%. There is no way 
that Senate Republicans will tolerate that. That will not be allowed to happen. What is now coming up is that House Republicans are saying, okay, okay, yes, we're going to have all those penalties, but we may still just shut the government down, just kind of because to add that to the mix. And even though that's not great, I think I would say like, okay, if you House Republicans want to shut the government down and basically explode your own political party by accepting pretty massive defense cuts, like, okay, like go for it. I, I don't know what that's going to get you. Um, and I don't know what it's going to get them. It's, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. And also kind of explains why the immediate Senate Republican reaction was mostly just like, why are they doing this? You know, it's just, I think I agree with you. It's one of those things that it seems like most likely to me to kind of end Democrats in the best possible position, because the easiest off ramp from this is, again, going to be to cut out the House freedom types who are insisting on dropping spending to old levels, you know, like, and then that leaves a deal to be passed on the backs of the Senate Republicans who want to preserve the military spending, the Senate Democrats, obviously, and then whatever, as many House Democrats as you can get to kind of make up for the Matt Gateses and the Lauren Boberts who are just never, ever, ever going to pass any kind of spending bill ever. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, um, uh, I don't know. I, I guess conceivably they could reopen some of the stuff, but then Republicans need to get back their 3% defense cuts. Now they're asking for something. And I pretty much guarantee you, Democrats are going to say, okay, well, we want this back. We want that back. Exactly. I mean, that is what almost seems the most feasible, passing a CR of some sort and then like a military rider, right, to keep those cuts from going into effect. But you're not going to have Democrats give that their votes unless they're like, okay, and then we also want to wall off, you know, various like spending programs from these cuts and the, the different social service type stuff. So I just don't think Republicans are in a very strong position. And it seems pretty clear that McCarthy has made this decision to let the appropriators write the bills at these untenable levels because the House Freedom Caucus just went through a week of grinding the entire floor of the House to a halt, blocking their own bills because they're pissy about the debt ceiling bill. And now McCarthy feels like he needs to throw them a bone or he's endangering his job. And the problem is you cannot throw the House Freedom Caucus a bone and continue to do these like necessary pieces of governing that still need to get done. So those two things are always going to be at odds, which is like the fundamental problem for McCarthy we've been talking about since his 15-round humiliation to get this job in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the the, the other thing is that um, the issue with the debt ceiling was always that a government default is a huge, huge thing. You're going to end up agreeing to terrible things to avoid it because it really is like someone coming into your office with like a bomb jacket and saying, give me something. You're not going to kind of, you know, you're not, you're not going to call their bluff, but here like, okay, I guess, I guess you guys may govern, you know, shut the government down in the middle of your primary season in the middle of the winter for kind of like totally no reason at all. And you're going to be mainly arguing with other Republicans and kind of like, I, I don't, I don't like that, but like, I'm, I'm not going to, 
I, I'm literally not going to lose sleep over it. So, and, you, know. you know, also over a deal you forged four months ago, and then McCarthy went to every microphone in town to brag about. So <laughs> I don't yeah, think it's optically I, I, terrific. Yeah, I, I, I just, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not losing a lot of sleep over this. Yeah, to be honest. Okay, so, so. we're going to kind of round things out with some surprisingly good news from Wait for It, the Supreme Court, which. Uh, especially on one of these cases, absolutely no one saw coming. So I'll, I'll start with the bigger one, which this was a redistricting dispute out of Alabama. Um, basically, the Roberts Court has weakened the Voting Rights Act to within an inch of its life. And one of the only things left that it has is this uh, under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, you can fight racial dilution cases, you know, which is when uh, people try to it's called cracking or packing, but they try to either kind of squish all the black voters into one district um, or diffuse them out throughout a big area. So their votes are kind of offset by a lot of conservative votes. Um, and so this case brought under Section 2 is fighting the Alabama congressional maps and also this novel benchmark proposed by the Alabama team, which says Basically, as it is to prove one of these cases under the VRA, you have to demonstrate that you can draw a map that would create a minority majority district, but that would also adhere to these other principles of, quote unquote, fair redistricting, which include things like it has to be compact, you know, can't like stretch all the way across the state. You're supposed to show that this is a kind of a like-minded political community that will probably support a s similar candidates and those kind of things. So you have to draw this preliminary map to show that it's possible. And you don't have to use that map as the final, but you just have to show that it's possible. That's part of proving these VRA claims. Alabama is saying by doing those kind of hypothetical maps at the beginning, that is an illegal racial gerrymander under the VRA. And to craft minority majority districts, it just has to happen by accident. You have to just kind of like put the maps in a computer system. And if any come out that look like that, that's okay. And they kept using as their defense, like we put in the, the data and, you know, we got 8 trillion maps that don't have a, a majority black district kind of thing. But it's, it's such a, it's one of those arguments where like you can make endless permutations of these maps. So creating millions that don't have this doesn't really say anything, right? But the, the crux of it is have taking away that, that part of proving these claims would basically make it just impossible to ever bring them. It would make this part of the VRA not work either. I and mean, kind of the last, uh, one of the, its last protections against racial gerrymanders would just be hollowed out. So in a massive surprise to everyone, John Roberts, who's done more damage to the VRA than anyone alive, handed down this decision that said, Oh, your novel benchmark, Alabama, that's ridiculous. We're not redoing our jurisprudence based on this like completely made up theory. So no, we're not doing that. And in addition, the district court here was right. This Alabama map is a racial gerrymander under the VRA. And we are preserving, you know, in whole that part of the law and showing that these cases are can still be successful. And it was a 5-4 decision. Kavanaugh was the big swing vote because the other kind of wrinkle in this case is this way back in uh, before the 2022 midterms, this is when the district court had said, yeah, this is a racial gerrymander. You need to redraw these maps before the midterm. So we're not conducting the midterms under a racial gerrymander. And then the Supreme Court stepped in through the shadow docket and said, put that order on pause. 
didn't say anything else. The majority didn't, but they just said, nah, you don't have to do that. We can have these maps operate for the election. And at the time, John Roberts wrote a dissent where he said, why are we using maps that a district court found to be a a gerrymander in an election? You know, we should uh, let the district court order stand, have them redraw the maps, and then let us do our merit stuff when there's not such a time crunch. Um, And then you had Kagan do a more kind of traditional liberal dissent of this will disenfranchise Black people for the election, et cetera, et cetera. But at that time, Brett Kavanaugh had joined with the majority to to stay that district court order, to let the gerrymander map operate under the election. But in here, he joined with Roberts and the liberals at the end to let this stand. And he did put in a little kind of bone to the conservatives in his concurrence where he said, we can't let, you know, the VRA kind of control racial gerrymandering forever. This can't extend into perpetuity, which, you know, Thomas like very quickly picked up on in his dissent. But still... At some point in this, it does seem like his mind was changed. And there's been kind of a, a flurry of speculation about, you know, is this just kind of throwing liberals a bone because they're about to hand down the really bad affirmative action decision and they're trying to show that they care about precedent sometimes, et cetera, et cetera. But end of the day, really big decision and a decision that basically everyone across the board thought was going to be used to just like murder what's left of the VRA and to just kind of leave almost no recourse to stop gerrymanders, which, you know, as we know, almost like exclusively benefit Republicans. And and probably on like a six to three vote, like not close, basically. Well, th- th- that assume, assuming assuming that it would have been th- the decision that everybody was expecting. Oh, right. They weren't right. expecting there to be any conservative dissenters from the from what they thought was going to be the majority decision. Right, because you did have Robert's dissent from the stay, but he's been such a like heroic VRA hater for his whole career that it, right, you, know, you right. still would probably put the safe money on him joining with the other conservatives on this one. Well, and what and what was the what, so what is the thinking? What what's the what what are the what are the strongest theories of why this happened? Well, it's like, you know, you've either it's you've got the two camps, you know, you've got the one camp of people who are like, well, you know, this would have been completely offensive to the court's jurisprudence and precedent, which is like, okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Right. And then, yeah, you've got the other camp that sees it as a more strategic move, um, trying to kind of soften the ground because we're nearing, you know, June is when all the big Supreme Court decisions come down and we're still waiting uh, for, a, I mean, we're still waiting for affirmative action. They t- still have said nothing on Moore v. Harper, which is the independent state legislature theory. So if they have like kind of horrible uh, conservative decisions coming down the pipe, there's a thought that maybe this is to, to assuage that a little bit, even though I haven't seen much evidence of them like over worrying about moderating themselves so far they've just kind of been doing what they've been wanting to do um you know i guess maybe kavanaugh had a genuine change of heart i saw people speculating that after the conservative um bud light uh boycott that is what swayed kavanaugh to embrace his liberal beliefs um that's just a joke but yeah i know it's a huge shock everyone across the board was shocked the only thing that occurs to me is that each in their own way, those two, I think, are the most political of the conservative members of the court. And I mean political here in a very specific sense. We talk a lot about Alito being very political in the sense of like making no effort 
to say, well, there's what I believe personally, and then there's my role as a judge, just like, fuck that. Like, you know, I'm just going to own the libs nonstop kind of thing. And we know that he and Thomas are extremely ideological. Um, and then, you know, in he in his own way, I mean, I think Alito is definitely of this camp of sort of like, whatever the Republican Party needs, I'm there. But here, I mean political in the sense that people have talked a lot about with Roberts of he's the one who thinks a lot about the standing of the court, his court. He's this is this is, you know, his court in the sense they talk about, you know, the Roberts court, the Rehnquist court um, and the legitimacy of the court. And sometimes you do things to keep people's respect for the institutional power and authority of the court from going too low. The other thing now, and and I think it's kind of established that he has played that role a number of times, not least on Obamacare and and, and stuff like that. And Kavanaugh, and I think this is, this is one of the many reasons that he should never have been on the court, is someone who comes out of politics. I mean, yes, he was sort of another one of these like, you know, Federalist Society test two babies, you know, kind of reared from in infancy uh, to be on the appellate courts or the Supreme Court. But, you know, he was one of the staff lawyers on the Starr investigation, very much a, a person of uh, rep Republican politics. And that, you know, potentially gives you a sense of sort of like, you know what, that one's a little... We're going to pay a, pay a price for that one. So we're going to kind of trim our sails a bit here because there's, you know, bigger fish to fry, all that kind of stuff. The one thing that is that, I mean, obviously I'm very happy about the decision, but the one thing that doesn't really quite compute to me about that is that these, these um, gerrymandering cases are not the kind of thing that get people out on the streets. They're, they're kind of obscure about what, you know, okay, this is this kind of really weirdly shaped district and all that kind of stuff. It's not like a Dobbs decision. It's not even like, it, it's, it's not even like a lot of like, you know, gay rights decisions and stuff now. It's, it's, it's not, it, it's, it's pretty obscure stuff. And um, if, if I'm someone on the court thinking like, we need to pull our punches a bit. You know, we've really taken a hit on Dobbs. We can't be doing more things that are going to make people think we are just a bunch of, we're just kind of a Republican super Congress here who just sort of does whatever we want. You can usually get away with this kind of gerrymandering stuff because again, it's it's kind of deep in the weeds and the people who are really going to be upset about it, they're totally against you already. Right. So in that sense, it's still a little... It's so, hard to figure. There's also this thinking that Roberts wants to kind of do the the right wing thing every time, but he does have some standards in terms of like, if the decision is just stupid and the lawyers are unprepared, which is not a rare thing right now because so many right wing causes think like, this is our shot, right? So we're just yeah. going to throw what we have. That, that that pisses him off. You know, that's like, I think is offensive to his sense of, I'm like this big, important man on this big, important court and you're going to come to me with this bullshit because you think I'm like, you know, going to be your puppet and kind of dance and do what you want. And that that is kind of offensive to him. And the Alabama argument was stupid and weird and kind of like 
pulled out of nothing. It's kind of similar to um, the Moore v. Harper case, the independent state legislature case, this right wing notion that uh, state legislatures to the exclusion of state courts and constitutions and governors are the only ones in charge of um, federal election administering. When that came to oral arguments, like Roberts was kind of pissy because they're doing this form of the independent state legislature theory where they think that governor's vetoes are fine. So it's this like huge, you know, we are the only ones in charge except for governor's vetoes we've decided. And it just like makes it sound even kind of like stupider and flimsier. And you could tell that he was annoyed in the moment that he was like frustrated Hmm. and he thought like, you know, was being kind of uh, not cloaking the fact that he was being like, well, this is stupid and this doesn't make sense. So I think that might also play in as well that he is he's willing to carry water for right wing causes, but like don't offend him by not doing your homework, you know? Right. It, 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 well, it's interesting because I, I have and I think most people think that Roberts is, you know, what really gets Roberts jazzed is the rollback of purported regulatory Mm -hmm. overreach, you know, business stuff, takings, things, you know, takings, regulation, all all that kind of stuff. That's that's kind of what he, you know, what he lives for. And um, uh, and it's not that stuff tends to be not terribly sexy in the sense that you don't get people out on the streets like, fuck this new takings ruling, man. I've had enough. I won't take, you know, no, no one even knows. Most of the people in the country don't even know what these technical terms apply to, um, even though they're very consequential. Um, but because in many ways, a lot of the federal society you know, kind of law and economics, you know, right-leaning law and economics type stuff is also like that. Even if it's bad constitutional interpretation, they've developed a lot of arguments over half a century, right? If you want to feel like I'm just, I'm just cutting back on the regulatory state because my brain is so big and I can understand why this is right. They've got the material for you to work with, right? And this kind of stuff, as you say, everybody's, you know, (laughs) you've got every two-bit right-wing lawyer in the country saying, man, did you hear? Supreme Court's a sure thing. Right. You see it written on the on the on the bathroom stall. They think anything will anything will go. So they come in with this sort of like, oh, we did a computer program and it came up with 20 million. And and you could see where someone like Roberts is like, dude, that's that's just stupid. And, and, you know, I'm not just an idiot that's going to just going to say yes to everything. And but I guess that still leaves Kavanaugh like what happened with Brent. I don't know. So. The other case that I want to mention is one that has gotten much less coverage, except for us at TPM, who have been covering it extensively. But basically, what it was about is this pathway that people who are beneficiaries of big spending programs like Medicaid, they can use this section of this law to sue the states that are administering the programs if they just decide, you know, we're not covering dental coverage or anymore or something like that. They can sue them, um, which is good because the federal government doesn't have a lot of recourse when states decide to do stuff like this other than just kind of like yanking the funding, which is not really going to help the people who need it. Um, And this case was up, uh, came up and Basically, all the experts thought 
because they're the various justices have written about this issue kind of a lot. And they thought this was like probably a goner that they were going to take away this pathway. Uh, let states kind of neglect the people who use these programs, which are mostly, you know, low income, disabled, elderly people um, and and just not really have any way of enforcing the uh, commitments of Medicaid, which the people who are kind of experts on this told me, you know, this case was to Medicaid what Dobbs was to abortion. It just it was fundamentally about whether Medicaid will continue to exist as an enforceable right or not. Ended up being a landslide decision. It was seven to two, only Alito and Thomas dissented, and it preserved these rights as a whole. You know, the U.S., uh, the DOJ even tried to kind of give an off-ramp to the conservatives of being like, okay, you don't have to preserve these rights for nursing home inhabitants, but preserve them for everyone else because there aren't that many um, public nursing homes to begin with. So it like wouldn't really affect a huge slice, but the, the court preserved it in its entirety. So just kind of a huge win for rights under spending programs. And again, definitely not as kind of uh, high voltage as the voting one, because this is a case that like I was basically the only person who was covering it and the court probably wouldn't have gotten yelled at that much if they did this, except by like, you know, disability activists and people who uh, those that are in power don't tend to listen to that much anyway. But, and Kate. And me. <laughs> yeah, and you. Right. But yeah, another, um, yeah, just a, a huge two decision day from the court where both were good and unexpected. And, and what's notable about that is that that is precisely the kind of case that I'm talking about with Roberts. You know, these kind of things about the interplay of, um, you know, the rights of disadvantaged people versus the, you know, versus in this case, state governments. And, and, and you know, that is, that's the kind of, that's the, exactly the kind of thing that I think he was reared on. No, we're going to cleave that back. Mm -hmm. You know? If the federal government has this power, they can take away the funds. That's their power. The state can decide how to use it, and that's it. Um, it's funny that I, m I remember uh, – what was the name? It's – what is the, what is the name of the case? Talevsky. Mm -hmm. So I, I saw that, I don't know if you saw this email, Kate, but, or maybe it was just to me. I can't remember if it was in the talk email. Um, someone wrote in and said like, you know, everybody's talking about the uh, voting rights case, but there's also this Tavelsky case. And like, that one's really important. You should be on it. And like, I just shot him back the URL to your piece. I'm like, boom, boom, <laughs> boom, and boom. It was kind of just, um, a little more involved than a usual Supreme Court case here because there was this huge push from activists in Indiana where this case originated to get the you know municipally run nursing home corporation to drop the case because they kept saying like you guys know this court you know what are the chances they're going to weigh the interests of the elderly and disabled um, as you know like a, an important interest to preserve here and they just did all that kind of like boring grassrootsy stuff of like going to all the meetings and doing all the public speaking comments and sending out letters. And this was just an issue that like no one cared about really. And they just basically made it their part-time job to try to get the case dropped before oral arguments, which obviously didn't happen. But, you know, it was a 
I talking to these people the day the decision came down, it was just like pure unadulterated joy because everyone is always in this defensive crouch at this point of like, what horrible thing is the court going to do? And we had this one day of respite. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and just just for people to understand, because I want to make sure we, we, we have the sort of the global big picture of what was at stake here, that we know that the Medicaid program is a federal program, but it is administered to a great degree by the states. Mm-hmm. And there is this, and and you'd think that it's a federal program, so the federal government tells the states they have to, what they have to cover. But there's no real enforcement mechanism for for various structural reasons. So the system has grown up where the enforcement mechanism is rights groups and treatment providers in the states that when a state, you know, goes rogue, those groups go into federal court and say, hey, they're supposed to cover this. They're not covering it. Here's all our facts. Make them do it. And what this case was about was basically to say, no, those private litigants have can't can't get into the question here that if the states if the states are breaking the rules, the federal government can say, okay, you broke the rules. No more Medicaid money for you, which obviously they're not going to do because then that will no one will get any money for anything. So, and that was going to upend this whole thing. So, as you can see, that was going to be a pretty big, a pretty big deal. That's going to have a lot of consequences. And it's funny because there's always so much talk of journalism bias, right? I mean, that's like the topic of like constant navel gazing conversations, but I've never heard anyone talk about the bias that like journalists hate covering Medicaid and like outside the kind of specific trades, people don't really do it. And I think it's in part because it's complicated and nobody likes to click on a Medicaid headline. And I know that's part of it, but also it's because all the interests at stake here are like generally non-powerful people, you know, it's people that are not generally um, like, influencing policy or even like starring in stories or anything like that. You know, it's generally the most vulnerable people in our society who depend on these programs. And so I don't know, it's just it it was a really interesting experience to kind of be in, involved in this from the beginning, but also again, just really compounds the the shock value. A seven two decision, you know, and Alito and Thomas pretty, barely even is, count. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're they're like the they're like the Freedom Caucus of the Supreme yeah. Court, basically. That really is about the size of it. Yeah, no, it's it's. I mean, look, because these stories are about people who almost definitionally are old, disabled, you know, and or a old and or disabled and or have no means whatsoever. So these are all people who are just holding on in society. And you're holding on, you don't have time to be the star of a news article or go protest or something because right. you're just surviving. And and um, and a lot of the whole Medicaid thing is just the basic blocking and tackling so the most vulnerable members of society don't completely fall through the cracks into right. nothing. And and there's an inherent uh, unsexiness about that, right? Yep. Of the people who are just holding on. But that is, you know, again, when you talk about liberal bias, those are the sort of the core liberal things of making sure the society doesn't completely abandon the people who are helpless. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a good, that is always a good example of, of uh, you know, 
there's there's really there's very there's there's not a lot of liberal bias in media. There is a certain cosmopolitan cultural values bias in media that is real, um, and those overlap sometimes. Cosmopolitan social values and liberal values overlap on like abortion to a significant extent, um, but they're not the same thing, and that's one of the basic. Uh, disconnects about how we about how everybody thinks about uh media and cities and rural areas and all that kind of all that kind of stuff so yeah good 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 one for the for the for the good guys there yeah i think that's it but we should um remind people about our our sponsor our bonus pod as well oh right you tell us yeah yeah so we'll we'll be joined by our um publisher joe regazzo and we're going to do an episode where we uh, talk about the the journalism fund, but also kind of this is going to be like the one we did about uh, state governments. That's kind of like it permeates a lot of the current stories, but is not as as wedded to a news hook as our weekly installment is. But we're going to talk about kind of uh, the state of journalism and media, and you know the the financial landscape and the philosophical landscape, and just you know all the good stuff about kind of the business that we're in yeah so it's not it's not it's it's kind of it's tied to the tied to the drive um because it's going to give you some background about why and what it's about and all that kind of stuff but more generally just about as you say the business of journalism and what's happening in journalism and 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 uh, all these kind of things and it's 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 something that um i and over the years increasingly joe who is has been with tpm for i believe 11 years certainly 10 years uh you know when you when you have an independent uh, media organization. When you work on the on the business side of an independent media organization, you have to really think a lot about the business of journalism because you need to know all the details and moving parts because it's very challenging to make it work, and it's challenging to make it work um, if you're not running a you know a sweatshop because it it's cheaper to run a sweatshop. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll get into all those kind of things, and that we'll we're doing that one tomorrow. Yeah, we're recording tomorrow, so expect a little special bonus treat in your feeds. There you go. And and remember, uh, today's episode is brought to you by TPM, and we are doing our drive. So if you are a podcast only only, uh, consumer, or if you're TPM curious you know, in finding out what other kind of stuff we do, uh, uh, come on over uh, to TPM, TalkingPointsMemo.com and participate in our drive. Good stuff. And uh, you'll be glad you did. Totally. And I think that's it. So that's all we got, right? Yep. All right. See you on the bonus. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.